Our scripture passage this evening is Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. That can be found on page 130 of your pew Bibles. As we read an account of blasphemy and punishment for blasphemy, in that text we will read, and in connection with it, we will look at Lord's Days 36 and 37. That can be found in your forms and prayers book, beginning on page 244. We continue going through the law of the Lord, coming to the third commandment this evening. Before we read from Leviticus, let's ask God's blessing. Lord God, we have on our minds this evening this law, a law given, that we would honor your name, that we would not take your name in vain and dishonor it. And Father, we pray that this would be very close to our hearts, for we do value your name above all names. And we pray then that not only would we be those to refrain and and know what we shall not say and and not say and, and speak of you disrespectfully in blasphemy or cursing or in our words and deeds, but we also pray that we would be those to know how to honor your name well. And this is our desire to, to bring that before you and to, to keep it as a, a mark of our gratitude and thanksgiving. We ask this in your name. Amen. Leviticus 24.10 and following. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Sends the reading from Leviticus. We turn our attention to what God's word would teach, summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 36 and 37, both of which deal with the third commandment. Question and answer 99 asks, What is God's will for us in the third commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help, prevent, and forbid it? Yes, indeed. No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. Lord's Day 37. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently. 
Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. May we also swear by saints or other created things. No, a legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creative thing is worthy of such honor. People of God, as we have this before us, this commandment, I want to read a series of statements, and I want you to think as I read them, is this the sin of blasphemy or is it some other sin? What, what would this, this statement show? First, the first statement, God would, God would never condemn homosexuality. It's, after all, a true expression of, of love. God loves the gay. There's, there's that statement. Or how about this one? I am going to a fortune teller. I'm interested in many practice, practices of divination. I've always been interested in that spirit realm and world. Or how about this one? God told me that I should divorce my spouse and marry this other person. I know he wants me to because I feel it to be right. Plus, he wants me to be happy. Or this, I promise before God to tell the whole truth, but then I lie under oath. Or another, God is not real. He doesn't even exist, and frankly, if the God of the Bible did exist, he would be the most undesirable, corrupted, despicable being I could ever think of. Or lastly, I curse God to death. Now, as we would evaluate those statements, some of those are more clear than others to be blasphemy and violations of the name of God. And, and perhaps some others, maybe more in the beginning, you would think, well, it's, it's wrong, but is that the sin of blasphemy? Why would that be, be misusing the name of God? Because in reality, as I'm sure we're all aware, each of those is actually blasphemy. And, and why would that be? Because in each of those situations or statements, what we did is we took the holy name of God and we plugged it into to lies and falsehood. Things he didn't say. Things that misrepresented his name, things that, that warped and, and took what he upholds as righteousness and tore it down. Or, as in some of the later scenarios I gave, it was a blatant disregard and disrespect for who God is. Blasphemy. Treating God's name with little weight, no respect, not caring about its honor. That is what we deal with in this commandment, that God upholds the holiness of his name. His name referring much more to, to the letters by which we call him. His name referring to his very being, his very character. And not just that alone, his words, his actions, even his deeds that we would condemn and, and dishonor and misuse. It's interesting to me that one of the commandments that we can tend to neglect, and perhaps neglect more in the sense we just don't think about it as much, is one that the Catechism would say is, is the worst of sins, and that God looks upon it with so much disfavor, and, and, and that, that there's nothing, no sin that's greater than to dishonor the name of the Lord. And we could ask, well, is that true? Is that really the case? 
You know, after all, I'm assuming, for, for many of us, maybe, we would think a, 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 a statement like blasphemy is not as bad as some of these other sins you could do. It's not as bad as, as some of the, the hot-button topics we might think of today, but truly it is, and, and why? Why is it? It's blatant. It's, it's so in-your-face. It deals with God's very character. Other sins, as reprehensible as they are, are often done in the pursuit of pleasure. It's not right by any means, but, but the sin of blasphemy is, is the true disrespect to God. And if you're a parent, you know the difference, right? You know the difference when your kids may disobey you, and it's wrong, and it should be disciplined. It's not right. And you know the difference when they would look at you and, and to your face say something that was truly terrible, truly dishonoring. And that's the difference between other sins and this sin. It's to take God and, and, and marry him to, to what's wrong and bad. When we refer to the name of God, it is to his holy name and his being. But how do we obey this commandment? What's God's will in the third commandment? We're going to look at first this evening, taking God's name in vain and, and what blasphemy is. And we're going to spend a lot of time on it. We want to spend a lot of time on all the ins and outs of this commandment and how it's being expressed, how we can blaspheme God's name. Exodus 27 is the commandment given in the Ten Commandments, and it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. A more literal translation might be this, You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God for nothingness. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God for nothingness. You spoke it for no reason, it was nothingness. And that can even be in just, we, we didn't care about it enough to truly honor it and use it well. Or it can be in those examples where we're treating it as nothing and saying, God, we curse you. That's somewhat of what we see in the text from Leviticus, a blaspheming and cursing the name. What is the, the typical way we would apply this? And it's certainly a correct one. How do we see blasphemy occur so often in our day? And it, it's in the profanity that's used. We know that. The way that God's name is treated as nothingness, as it's unholstered to punctuate a sentence as it's used to bring down a curse on someone, as it's thrown into anything just to add an exclamation to it. And what's not being meant is that this is God's will and this is his word to you. What's not being meant is that I truly pray that God would bless you or it's not a praise where we would say, oh, I am praising the name of the Lord for what I see, but it's taken upon our lips with a little thought. Treated nothing more than any other word. We see that all the time as OMGs and many forms and formats get flung out or when God's name is combined with damning. And why? Why would we use it in this way? It's, it's disrespectful. It's disrespectful for God, to God. But there's a history there as well. There's a history behind it and why people would use that. Even in, even in bringing God's name into situations that would devalue it. See, it extends to every area of life. We have to be careful with how we speak of God and his name. We have to be those who, far from not only blaspheming it and using it as just basic profanity, that's bad enough, but we have to be those who, when we use the name of God, 
We're treating it reverently. We're, we're thinking before we speak. And, and why we're using his name is because we're attaching it to some purpose, to his word, with respect, and with honor. We wouldn't treat our loved ones' names in the way that most people treat the name of God. Rather, we would defend it. We wouldn't allow the names of some of our loved ones to be spoken of as the way we do God. And in some sense, I'm conscious of the fact that I don't want to just browbeat us. I don't want it to be a, a cheap, cheap application that, that it's a finger wagging, that you all need to, to honor the name of the Lord more. That's not the intent, even if that's also what is the case. That we should honor the name of God. That we should treat it with such respect that we would not have his name be devalued in our presence. Now we'll get into what more that means. But that should be on our hearts. How often don't we devalue the name of God even in our minds? Or attach God's, God's very character to something that's not true and false? We can slip into these things. But the Catechism, as well as Scripture, gives examples of how this happens. And like I said, I want to go beyond just, hey, don't profane. And that's true. But I want to go deeper into that because there's many ways in which the name of the Lord can be blasphemed. And the first we're going to look at is false oaths. As the Catechism talks about it, false oaths. And under this we'll look at unnecessary oaths and perjury. The literal translation of the commandment is, as I said, to lift up the name. You will not lift up the name for nothingness. That term for lifting up had a fairly technical meaning. It was used in legal situations to refer to taking of an oath when witnesses needed to confirm their testimony. We see today that someone will place their hand on, on the Bible and, and raise their, their hand. Might have got my hands wrong there. You raise your, your right hand when you place it on the Bible. And you swear an oath, and that's what we're, we're used to, that imagery. Well, it would be lifting up the name of the Lord as a witness. You'd be swearing by God's name. That's what you're doing. It's an it's a example, and it's saying that God is my witness, that what I'm saying is true. The words leaving my mouth are what's in my heart and my intent to do. I will do these things. And so lifting up God's name was especially tied into oaths that were made. And we, we sometimes too much just think, oh, blasphemy is, is just that profane use of God's name. It is that, but there's, there's more to it. There's, there's this usage of God's name to call upon it. And there's a right way to do that and a wrong way. One of the wrong ways is unnecessary oaths. This is coming from what Jesus had said in Matthew 5.37 and James 5.10, where it seems as if Jesus is saying you shall not swear oaths at all. It seems as if he's saying categorically there will be no swearing of oaths. He even says to, to let your yes be yes and your no, no, and that's it. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that oaths cannot be taken in any way? And we would interpret that and say, no, part of the reason we would say that is the way we see the saints act in God's word and the oaths they take. Rather, what Jesus is responding to is, a, is that situation in the day where there would be those who would swear by other things than God's name, and they would do so flippantly. The intent of an oath is to provide security for something. Well, what was happening is that they would give an oath and swear by something close enough to God that would secure their word, but not so close that they would actually have to do it. And so they could swear by heaven and earth, but they didn't swear by God. Or they could swear by the gold of the temple. 
And you see what they're trying to do. They're trying to, to misuse the very name of God. Not because in that sense they were taking God's name on their lips in that way. But the very, very idea is that people who should bear the name of God are giving oaths and putting their word to something they have no intent to use and trying to get as close to, to God as possible. And in the process, elevating created things to a position of honor that it doesn't hold. The world cannot hold you to your word. The gold of the temple cannot hold you to your word. And so there's this whole situation going on. The reason that swearing an oath, we wouldn't say, is absolutely wrong is from verses like Deuteronomy 10.20. Deuteronomy 10.20, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So you have here the very acknowledgement that you are to swear by God's name and his alone. He is the only being who an oath can be made and who will hold someone to that oath. And so, Jesus is not denying all oaths. He's speaking against those human traditions. There's also other examples why Matthew 5 and James 5 would not be saying no oaths at all. Abraham swore oaths to the king of Sodom, to King Abimelech. Abraham's servant in service to, to him as a faithful servant swore an oath to Abraham. Boaz in the book of Ruth, righteous Boaz, presented as a very righteous man, he swears to Ruth. Paul, the Apostle Paul, often called on God as his witness to verify the truth of what he was saying. Say that as, as God is on his throne, this is true, what I tell you. Even Jesus, when he was in the, uh, being on trial before his death in Matthew 26, 63 through 64, seems to swear by God himself. There's that statement that's given that Jesus swears by the living God that he was the Christ. That's what the high priest asks. And then the high priest responds when Jesus answers and says he's committed blasphemy. And so there's these examples that we can indeed swear an oath, but when we swear an oath, we're putting God's name to it reverentially, and it better be the truth. You see the point in that? It better be the truth. You're calling God in all his power and righteousness as your witness. And the Catechism will explain that in understanding God's word, that we can, when appropriate, when, when legal demands call us to, or when a situation requires it, that we can appeal to God himself. But now you start seeing, well, what if you appeal to God himself and attach it to something wrong and false and to a lie? You see why that would be despicable in God's sight? To say, God knows this to be true, and it's not. Or to say, I swear by God himself that what I'm telling you is the truth. And that's what happens. It happens when those will make unnecessary oaths. They, they demean the name of God. And it happens in cases of perjury. It's another example given in perjury when in a legal setting, when an oath is required that you would swear by God's name and then lie. Why is that so reprehensible? Because you've accounted God's name truly as worthless and meaningless. He's not going to touch me. He can't do anything about it or... I care more about lie and this lie that I'm telling than the truth. 
perjury and unnecessary oaths. But what about treating God's name in vain? How does that happen? Part of treating God's name in vain involves both the idea of curse and blasphemy. They go together. We see that in our text. You see that the man blasphemed the name and cursed, so they go together, but there's a little bit of a distinction. Cursing was to call upon a deity to judge and pay back a person for wrongdoing, and this is the history behind when we would couple God's name with a damnation of someone. And people say that all the time. There's a history there because what was to be done was that you were pronouncing a curse on someone and that God was going to fulfill it that God was going to come and be your avenger and he was going to do to them exactly what you said he'd do. Now there's an appropriate times in God's word where God does curse and he calls his prophets to curse nations and peoples. But to take God's name and say that about someone is to take God and seek to manipulate him for your purpose. That God in heaven will do what I say he'll do and he'll curse you. And you're damned, and you're going to be hurt to misuse and abuse it, to manipulate God and use his power. It was used as a weapon at your disposal, like you could just unholster this curse and take God's name and use it for nothingness, as if it was empty, as if God, the Lord of the universe, was at your beck and call. That's involved in a curse. Cursing can mean, and it's defined in many ways, it's to call forth God's judgment, but it also means to look at with contempt. There's a situation in David's life when a man is hurling insults at him, and what he's doing is he's cursing him, he's dishonoring him, it's insulting him, it's to treat with disrespect. That's also an aspect of cursing, to revile, to treat someone as light, and to treat with contempt. That's all involved in cursing. And the word blasphemy actually comes from a word that means to pierce. To pierce it full of holes, to take something and drill a hole through it, to devalue it. To take something that would be useful, think of a pot, think of a purse, think of something that could hold it, and to cut a hole in it. And what you've done is you've made it worthless. You've blasphemed it, or to blaspheme the name of the Lord is to poke it full of holes. And treating God's name that way. So to take the, name, the Lord's name in vain is, is to mean that it is to treat it as worthless, for no purpose, as false or fake, to poke it full of holes. We also see other things that crop up, and that we might think, well, is that really blasphemy? Sorcery? How does sorcery fit into that? Well, as we've already heard, God refuses to be manipulated. He refuses to have his name so devalued and used as in that way. Well, what sorcery requires is the usage of words and incantations, of, of magical deities that you tap into and have their power at your disposal. You can sort of take it down and use it. And this is nothing more than treating God's name like a magical incantation. We actually see this in Acts. In the book of Acts, there's the, uh, the usage of the name of the Lord. The Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul, they go about and they do miraculous things in the name of Jesus. And so there are those who think 
It's this Jesus, by, their, by the power with their doing that, so if I can, can learn this, if I can learn that, that incantation and what's behind it, I can use his name and use this power for my sorcery purposes. It actually happens in Acts. In Acts 19, verse 14, the seven sons of Sceva misuse Jesus' name. They want it. There's also another account in Acts of, I think it's Simon the sorcerer, who, who takes that and wants to, to be able to pay Peter and say, I want your power. I want to be able to use Jesus. Jesus' name for this. And so again, you see how this is blasphemy because you've taken God's name and, and brought it to, to something that was wicked, manipulative, that doesn't account for God's will, that's not, that's not spoken of in the truth of God's word. And so sorcery is, is blasphemy, as well as false prophecy. False prophecy, God's name is misused in connection with this. What does a prophet say? A prophet says, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Well, when a prophet says, thus says the Lord, and then says what God never did, you see quite clearly he has taken what is God's perfect name and put it with what is not true and unholy and accounted it worthless. And this has happened throughout history, trying to to bend God's name and, and use it to verify or condone something. It was by that same use that that Jesus' name was coupled with crusades and slave trades and political parties and social causes and, and whatever you can pin his name to and will abuse and misuse it and take his name and say God says this, it's God's will to do this. That's why in that example, one of the first examples we gave as we started the sermon is when we would say that, well, God doesn't say that that's a sin. And if he does... If his word reveals that it is reprehensible in his sight, we blasphemed his name. False prophecy and spreads wide and deep in all these things. I want to also address what the Catechism says, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. I think it's helpful to go into this a little bit because we might hear that and then think it's, it's necessary for us to, to, to track down every time we hear someone say, OMG on the street and, and go running after them to try to not be a silent bystander. And I'm not trying to say we shouldn't defend the name of the Lord in an appropriate setting, but, but what is the catechism really getting at here? I think the catechism is really getting at the idea of false oaths and perjuries and that sort of thing. And the reason I would say that is even in the footnote, footnote 4, after it says silent bystanders, references Leviticus 5.1. Leviticus 5.1 says, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. It's, a, it's an example from Leviticus where you know the truth of a matter that's being judged, and you don't speak, you're a silent bystander, and what has happened is God's name has been put either falsely or through ignorance to something wrong. And you just let it go. And it's condemning that, that we would stand there either knowingly or, or just not even care. This will also be applied for when we hear someone make an oath and they swear it in God's name and we know that that's not true. We know that they're not actually believing that. We, 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 we've witnessed or seen something that would undermine their oath. And to not bring it to light is to allow God's name to stand on a falsehood and a lie. And misuse and blaspheme it. Another verse that's referenced is Proverbs twenty nine twenty four. 
says the partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the curse, or can be translated oath, but discloses nothing. I'm going to read that again, changing curse to oath. The partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath, but discloses nothing. It makes you a partner with the thief when you've heard, and even in this example from Proverbs, this thief swears, I swear before God, I did not steal that. And you know they did. And now you're his partner. His partner in crime because you didn't care enough to take and purify in that sense the name of God and to take that away from what is false and to stand on truth. And so though we should certainly seek when it is wise to do so and we hear God's name being profanely bantered about that we would stand and it is appropriate for us to apply it and apply it to that as well. Sometimes we are silent bystanders when God's name is being routinely and roundly abused and misused in the way it's spoken of and we do nothing. But it also helps us to apply what this means to be a silent bystander is especially in these cases where, where truth is actually falsehood and God's name has been put to it. All these ways in which we understand and honor God. And that is our second point, treating God's name with honor. Treating God's name with honor. And this, we're going through this briefly. I wanted to go more through the, the ins and outs of keeping this commandment of, of how we could fail in it and understand that. But briefly, how do we treat God's name with honor? Well, first, you can only treat God's name with honor is if you live in his Son and if you come before him in the name of his Son. Going back to the examples from Acts, it was in the power of Jesus' name that, that the miraculous deeds were done. And we reverence and glorify the name of God as we glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And as we stand in him, we glorify God's name. In fact, we are unable to give to the honor to the name of the Lord if we do not honor his Son. Catechism explains as well that we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. How do we treat God's name with honor? Well, know who he is. It's not enough to, to know the name God or Lord. You're not going to reverence God's name if you don't know him. If you don't know the ins and outs of who he is. If you don't dig into and know every aspect about him. As one author says, I think this is very helpful. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the key for a proper use of God's name or stealing ourselves against its misuse is a proper understanding of God. If we truly know who God is, we will never come close to abusing his name. And that's true. And we will have more outrage when we know more of who God is when we see his name abused and misused. Honoring God's name as well means that we're going to live a holy life because God's name is on you. And we dishonor his name when we live faithless lives. And we don't seek to do what is right and good. And, and we don't live in a loving way. Well, that doesn't honor his name. So to honor his name is in, is in Jesus Christ and trusting in him. It's in knowing God and fellowshipping with him. It's in obedience and walking in obedience to consecrate it 
What does it mean to consecrate something? To set it apart for a special purpose and a sacred use. I don't do this much today. It's sort of fallen out of favor in our day and age, but it used to be you had the fine china, and you would put it away, and everyone had the china cabinets, right? You'd display your dishes, but it was only to be pulled out for the special occasion. You took the special dishes for the special people, well, what do we do with God's name? It's, it's consecrated, it's set apart, and, and we don't just throw it out there for any reason. When we use it and when we think of it, it's special. It's special to us. Another author said, Every believer must regularly ask himself whether he is really communicating what God wills or whether he is simply pressing his own will and using God's name to accomplish his goal. We press the will of God in his alone. We honor his name. We live. We reverence it. We treat it with awe. We also went through this as we did so that we would understand sin and seek to restrain it. And not because we believe. You know, that's the danger of, of preaching through the law. The danger of preaching through the law is, is to say, do all of these things and then you'll be good with God. And that's not what we mean here. Why would, we, why would we go through it in this way to, to try to understand it as deeply as we can? It's because we love God so much that we want to know every way in which we could fail and we want to know every way in which we can succeed, every way to keep it. And this way we go through all the commandments that we would see as we go through. It's not that we will save ourselves by keeping it, which we haven't and can't, but that we would know God's law enough to know how to properly reverence his name, to know what to avoid, to, to even know this. Now, are we placed in many situations where we might hear a legal oath and God's name attached to it? Certainly not. But when we are in positions that come close to that, now what will strike us is, no, we will stand on the reverence of God's name. We're better equipped to uphold it and keep it because we are plumbing the depths of his law. I want to end on a, a little story of why we do what we do, why we go through the law like this. Tom and Julie are married. Tom wasn't particularly interested in art. He didn't understand it. He didn't have an eye for it. Quite frankly, he thought art was mostly boring and he didn't understand it. When they would go to an art museum or an art gallery, he went there with unease and anticipated boredom. That's Tom. But Julie loved art. And so Tom studied the various styles, and he studied and studied, and though he did not have an eye for it, he studied all the harder and was eventually able to talk about his wife and, and to point at a, a painting and, and a style of art and know that's impressionism, that's surrealism, that's abstract, that's expressionism, that's oil painting, etc. And began to know the ins and outs of art. The plain and simple reason he did this was because he loved Julie. You see, his study, his learning, even eventually his mastery of art was because he loved her, and so the hours devoted to its attention was an act of love. And you know why Tom didn't do this? Tom didn't do this so that he could be more married to Julie. He was married to her already, and no amount of study would make him more married. And in the same way, we study the law in depth, and we want to master it, not because we can be more saved or more married to Christ, but because we love him. 
We want to master the law not because we're legalists and legalism, but because we're gospel-filled. And when you're gospel-filled, you're law-filled, and you keep it and know it, and you desire to honor God's name. We spend so much time going through the law for that reason. And I hope we know all the ins and outs, not for that sake, but to better bear the image of Christ. Because we love Christ. Because we honor the name. Because we love the name of our Father, who has saved us, redeemed us through his plan. And we love the name of the Son, our Savior, and the Spirit, our indweller. And we treat their name, the one name of God, with great weight. And we don't poke it with holes. And we don't treat it for nothingness. We treat it only with reverence and awe. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and thank you and praise your great name. We honor you for you are truly holy above all else. We pray, Father, not only for forgiveness for the times in which we have blasphemed and taken up your name and treated it with little respect or weight, and we pray that we would only grow daily to honor and know you more and more. We ask this in that great and holy name, our Lord Jesus Christ.